you see this telephone, it's a Kremlin telephone, if they will call this and will tell you that they're calling from the Stalin's secretary, say nothing, nothing. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 25 of Cold War Conversations in partnership with the Cold War Museum. Now, it's not every day that I get to speak to the son of a Soviet premier on the podcast, but today I'm delighted to speak with Professor Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, who led the Soviet Union as the first secretary of the Communist Party from 1953 to 1964, and as chairman of the Council of Ministers, or Premier, from 1958 to 1964. Before we start, I would again like to thank all of those who are supporting the podcast with monthly pledges and donations. It is much appreciated and will allow us to expand the scope of the podcast, which hopefully is illustrated by today's guest. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, go to our website, coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. In part one of this interview, we talk about Professor Khrushchev's early years, his relationship with his father, his father's rise to power, the 1956 Hungarian uprising, as well as the first international visits accompanying his father to the UK, East Germany and the USA. If you are a member of our Facebook discussion group, then you would have had the opportunity to provide questions for Professor Khrushchev. I've tried to include as many of these as I can, but apologies in advance if your questions didn't make the final cut. Welcome, Professor Khrushchev, to Cold War Conversations. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast, and a number of our listeners have submitted questions for you. And the first question we have is, what was life like during the Stalin period? When you're talking about the Stalin's era, Stalin died in 1953 when I just graduated from school. So if we talk about the early period, like Second World War, before the World War, I was just a kid, so I don't remember the Stalin's era. But I will tell you that, uh, of course, my uh, situation on one side was privileged, so I did not experience any shortages of food like all ordinary Russians. But it is not also, I did not have any fear, because you have to understand that in such dictatorship, like Stalin dictatorship or Hitler dictatorship, it is dangerous to speak about this. So our parents never speak about this. And we believed in all that propaganda uh, that was... Uh, just put in our brain 
that the Stalins is doing the best, that is where enemies of the people. It is very similar to the propaganda now against Putin and the United States and the Great Britain. When many of the people believe that the Putin is a dictator and he is supporting all the bloody regimes. So it was the same. So we were happy. I was at school and we lived not the political life of the country and the, their problems, but our own problems. And you know that in the teenagers, they have many, their specific problems. Yeah. And did, did you ever meet Stalin? No, I never met Stalin because uh, after Stalin's uh, wife committed suicide, and this was 1930, mm -hmm. just uh, several years before he born, he lived more or less normal life, meeting with the people, have some parties, inviting other people, but then after that he never invited anybody except his close associates whom he personally picked up, who have to come to his place to mm -hmm. watch movies, which he liked to watch movies late in the evening, and then to have dinner, and dinner was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And just this small group of the people, six, seven people were there around the table day after day, but nobody else. So I saw Stalin only once or twice when I was in the technical school, and it was the May Day celebration, and it was the Revolutionary Day celebration on the November 7th, and we went through the Red Square, and we were on the... Uh, street of the Stalin was standing on the mausoleum and waking, waking, and we waved him. Nothing else. Right, right. And 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 how how do you think your father survived all the uh, the purges? You know, this is the very simple and well, but also and and the. Same difficult question because nobody can answer how you survived. You can ask people in London how they survived German bombing. Why? Yeah. So it was the same. It was a it was the luck, and maybe it was part of this uh, because in the peak of the purges, just not on the peak, but in the end of this peak of the purchase of 1938 till 1950, my Stalin was not in Moscow. So he was not so much involved in all this confrontation and competition around, around Stalin, which usually happened. Right. And also it was the war, and uh, Stalin needed the people whom he can trust. And also because Stalin was focus his purchase not so much against the new leaders, but the old ones who knew him during the revolution and civil war, when Stalin was really nobody, and yeah. he tried to present himself as one of the leaders who was next to Lenin, or maybe Lenin was next to him. 
So he first want to eliminate them. And uh, then in the late 40s and early 50s, came turn to the new leadership. And Stalin executed his uh, very close associates, Kuznetsov and Wisniewski in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And I think that the fate of the Second World War leadership was also doomed because now Stalin didn't want anybody to be a witness how he was scared during the uh, German offensive. But he had no time to do it. So would, would Stalin survive another three, four years, maybe? My father will be arrested and I would have also no possibility to talk with you. Right, right. No, that, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. How, how much did your father confide or talk to you about you know, what was going on and his work? Nothing, because it was very dangerous. You have to understand that it was the police state, and we can compare this only, this control over the state, or that control that now we have through the new era of the computer and television in in the Western world. And... uh, through this, everybody reported about everybody, and you can say nothing about Stalin because nobody how, how it will be interpreted. Yeah. And especially it was dangerous on the higher leadership because it was more attention to this. So we live more or less free life when my father was the governor of Ukraine and we live in Kiev where we have guests. Very different it was the uh, state and party officials, generals, uh, artists, writers. My father liked this, to meet with the people and to uh, talk with them. Yeah. And uh, it was no many restrictions. But then when we moved to Moscow, my father first brought me in our country house to this uh, small table with the different telephones and show me. You see this telephone, it's a Kremlin telephone. If they will call this and will tell you that they're calling from the Stalin's secretary, say nothing, nothing. Right. I was afraid. I say, I will uh, look for my father and then look me and invite me here. So I knew about Stalin. The same as any other people until the 20th Party Congress. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, you know, Stalin dies. There's a, a sort of a, a battle for power with Beria and your father. Did you ever meet Beria? Did you I ever? Met, uh, several times, but he was not very close with my father. My, we were close with Malenkov and Bulganin, it was another member of the, of the leadership, maybe Zhukov, but he was not a member of leadership at yeah. that But Beria lived in the distance, and so sometimes they drove together from Kremlin back home, and uh, it was my father and Malenkov and uh, Beria, and my father and Malenkov, they live in the same 
apartment building in downtown Moscow, and Beria lived in some different place. So he brought them there, and then a couple of times when I walk home from my school, they standing there chatting, and my father told, I will introduce my son to you, Lavrentian, this same this is Comrade Beria. So I saw him. But now I have this memory just under the shadow of the late events. So for me, the barrier looks uh, very, how to say, dangerous, but I don't think so that it was really at that time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and how did your life change when your father became a leader? My life didn't change when my father became a leader after Stalin, because my father became member of the highest leadership of the Politburo in 1938 when I was three years old, and right. after that it was the same uh, life. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Of all this high in the highest highest Soviet society, and of course it was a different responsibility of my Stalin, and I understood that it was different responsibility, and he has to do many more other things that he did before, but it was not reflected or affected uh, my personal life, it was just the same. All the time you live exposed to the other people, and it was not so many pri privileges. Uh, it, it was no bodyguards with me, it was no cars could bring me. When I went somewhere, I walk on the public transportation subway or tram. It was safe, and uh, the, the Soviet culture told, it is different. Your father, he is the leader, and he is self-made man. And you're just his son. That means that you're ordinary, uh, how to say, youngster. If yeah. you want to, to become something, you have to do it by yourself. Of course, my name helped me, but anyway, you have to be self-made man. How did you hear about the secret speech at the 20th Party Congress? I heard about secret speech after the speech together with all others. After my father delivered this, and he came home, 
And it was beginning when he uh, chatting about this, and when I show that I'm interested, he gave me this thin red brochure that they sent to the party organization and the uh, leadership of other communist parties with the text of the speech and told, if you want, you may read. And I was shocked. This was for Stalin, because as I told you, Stalin for me was like a god, and he was one of the personally, not of course, even ever since, but he is just the best of the all other people, and I found that he is really criminal, and I was shocked. Yeah, yeah, so there was a big surprise to a lot of people. Yes, it was not surprised because people did not know this, and of course people did not know when uh, you try to say that your hero or your guard is not hero, not guard, and they prefer not believe you than to believe in what you said. The other Soviet leaders of the time, such as Malenkov and Zhukov, what were they like? You know, the Malenkov was one of these uh, smart party bureaucrats. He was a very weak leader. Uh, but he was just right hand, hand of the Stalin, because Stalin gave him orders what to do, how to do, how to promote, even he was managed his personal uh, prison, where they sent most prominent uh, people who were arrested. But after the Stalin death, Malenkov tried to find some other leaders. And first it was Beria, then my father. When we talk about Zhukov, Zhukov is well-known man, but Stalin kept him aside, far away, because first of all, Zhukov was like a General MacArthur, a General Patton, was leader of the, of the time of the war. It was difficult to control them, and he was not a good politician. Secondary, Stalin wanted to present himself as a great uh, military leader, and he didn't want any competitor like Zhukov, because Zhukov would claim that he won the war, not the Stalin. So Zhukov was one of the first in the line for the new Persians, and he was sent from Moscow, First, because Stalin sent him first to Odessa, where he was the leader of the uh, local uh, military district, and then even further on the uh, Siberia, Siberia, where also was the uh, commander of the military district. And only when Stalin died, my father uh, make initiative and re bring the Zhukov back to Moscow and promote him to the deputy defense minister and very soon he became the defense minister. I understand that you went on visits abroad with your father. Well, he uh, just tell me, would you go with me? Of course, I was ready to go. My first visit to the 
outside the Soviet bloc was our visit to the Great Britain in April uh, 1956. And who who did you meet there? Did you meet Eden and the uh, British politicians, or? Oh, I met all of them, and Eden and all others, and it was the conservatives and the Labour politicians, and who, but I was just standing behind my father and listening to them and watching them, so I remember many of the things, because it was first visit, it was a shock for me, as the Soviet propaganda, the Stalin time, presented that in the Western world, they live, they're very poor, they have nothing. And then, then I saw all these lights in the shops and the stores, and that they have much more and better goods that we have in the Soviet Union. It was a shock. But also I remember other things. I remember when uh, once uh, it was the weekend and my father and Bulganian went to Czechos and they, I was in London and then Eden told me that my son, his son, just picked me up and brought me to there and he brought me there. And I remember everything and I just watched uh, on the BBC, the Czechos now, that's uh, their room near the fireplace, and I found mm -hmm. the same. In 60 years, nothing changed. The same furniture, the same windows, the same fireplace. <laughs> Can you tell me what you know about the Hungarian uprising of 1956? We, we present the Hungarian uprising as the democratic revolution. Which, first of all, untrue, it was not a revolution, it was uprising just in the Budapest and a few other cities, and it was anti-Russian uprising. You have to remember that the Hungarians were the bitter enemy of the Russia, not Soviet Union. It was not against Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. It is all confrontation with the, with the centuries. Or maybe 17th century was confrontation between Russian Empire and Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Hungarians were the allies of the Germans in the First World War. They just one of the nation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then they close allies of Hitler. And when yeah. they, and then when they invaded Russia, they our memory was that Hungarians, much, much worse, even the Germans, committed all these crimes and committed, it was very brutal, and they was uh, just torture people. So for us, they were enemies. And so it was some uh, uncertainty in the, my father's mind, would he have to involve in this or not? And at last he decided that we must to suppress the surprises, but for us we have no doubt we have to suppress them, and because they defeated the enemy is defeated, and if you just try to uprise against us, we cannot allow them. Well, you can imagine what will happen with 
Americans, for example, if 1956 Japanese were told, take your military out of Japan and we want to join Mao Zedong. Yeah. So, and you have to remember, when this uprising was interrupted in the first stage, we just thinking about this like a very democratic event and we just want to present it how it has to look like for us. But in reality, would they take over, it will be very bloody and the old guard, the fascists and others will come to the powers, no doubt. Now, because uh, of course, <coughs> in the this first stage of the uprising or any others, the young people are on the uh, front line and they are really honestly fighting for the best and for the, they want to be the, 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 make the democracy. But when you're coming to the end, much more powerful politicians coming and they sit there at the time ready in the Austria. And of course it was also a very important event for the United States because it was two brothers, Dallas, John Foster Dallas, the Secretary of yes. and Alan Dallas, the head of CIA. And they have very carny and wise plan having winning, winning situation. Because from one side they told if Soviets will um, do something not logical and they allow this opposition, we say, such way to win, mm -hmm. it will be a small victory because another small territory and the uh, several millions of people will join NATO and will move to this 200 kilometers closer to Soviet borders. But if they will suppress it, which is natural, it mm -hmm. will be a very big propagandist victory of us because it will be possible to present these events the same way it is presented now as the suppressing the Democrats, that was a democratic event. And it was uh, very well orchestrated, because I remember uh, when it was the beginning of this uh, confrontation with the, uh, between opposition and Hungarian government and preparation for the Russian involvement, from one side, American diplomats, personally I know people in New York and United States and in uh, Paris, where the one of the diplomats who worked for CIA met with the uh, Soviet official who was close to intelligence, his name was Yerofeyev, and they told them, just private conversation, Mm -hmm. the lunch and dinner, we have tell you that we will not involve in all these things if you will use force suppressing the surprising. And by the way, when Russia did nothing, the same person called to Mr. Rafiev in Paris and asked for another meeting and told, 
you're doing nothing. They told you will not be involved. You can do everything what you want. At the same time, the radio controlled by CIA and Allendale say, we are coming, we are coming, fight stronger, stronger. So they want to energize this fighting and provoke the Russian to use force and suppress this fighting that will create that situation that we had after all the things. But I think it was inevitable because... Yeah. Each of such events you have on the country, you have people who support you, your allies, and you have your enemies. And if you will not support your allies, but support enemies and allow them to win, it will be stupid. So it was first my father's try to be neutral, but then he decided we have to use force because this opposition started to kill just our allies, just hanging them on the street. I know you visited East Germany several times. Did you meet Walter Ulbricht? I met with Ulbricht maybe every summer because Ulbricht, like other uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet bloc leaders, went to the vacation to the Crimea. Mm-hmm. And we were on vacation in the Crimea, so for me he was just one of the, my father's associates. Yeah, what was he like? He like like anybody else. He was, was a more or less normal person. He was not very close to my father because he was he has more bureaucratic nature than my father. So my father was closer to the uh, Gamulka, the leader of Poland, mm-hmm. or the leader of the Hungary, who was it at the time, I forgot, who was more active in the um, Reformation and other things. Uh, it was Janusz Kader from Hungary. But the Ulbrich, he more uh, try to follow all these rules and orders. And also, of course, it was the problem with the Berlin and Berlin emigration of the, or exodus of the German people, because my father really wanted to present East Germany as the example of the uh, Soviet success and just which will bring the western people on our side and because the Ulbrich was not able and didn't want to make any reforms Mm. he was not really involved in this economic development and the situation in the country became weaker and weaker my father tried to tell them all the things that they now understand, but Ulbrich did not know what to do and how to do it. You have to have your own mind. So they was not very close, but it means nothing because you have to deal with that leaders of the countries which now they're in the position. And I think it was very superficial vision 
that we think that the Kremlin can replace any of these leaders. No. In 1959, you visited the United States. Was that quite a contrast for you? No, at that time it was no shock because I understood what has happened there. So surprise was opposite because we have to, this vision of United States, like a country of the very high success and country of the skyscrapers. And then I found that they have roads with the bumps, it is simple houses, and uh, and all of them looks uh, very good. So it was this surprise, but of course for us it was very important, very interesting, because it was like we were like Columbus discovering America. No Russian or Soviet leaders were in the United States before. My mm. father was the first, so everything was very interesting. And you met Eisenhower and Nixon? Yes, of course I met Eisenhower and Nixon, and uh, but it was uh, the same as the Great Britain. I met them, I shake hands, I say hello, but <laughs> I had nothing else because they didn't speak with me, they talked with my father. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do with your time there then? Or, first of all, when you member of the official delegation, it is very boring, because you have to stay in the last lines in all these events, listening the same uh, speeches time after time on this place and others, and you cannot escape. Mm-hmm. When once I sneak from this there, you want to walk around the city somewhere, the newspaper wrote, oh, Khrushchev's son was not there and there. That may mean that he disagreed with his his father and decided not to stay there. So my father told, I brought you here to do what everybody doing. So, but when it was free time, it was not so much time. I tried to use walking around the streets and looking in the and looking around. And even once I asked the Secret Service to bring me somewhere in the countryside because I collected butterflies and I want to catch some American butterflies. Hmm. So they put us me and told, Oh yes, we'll do it. They were ready for everything. And we lived in the on the other side of the uh, avenue in the uh, Washington D.C. This Blair House, and we walk in the White House, and there, just uh, in front, it was one not visible door, and they put me in the some tunnel, and then we went out on the other street at the intersection were very far from the journalists. They told, it will be better, that will not follow by journalists. And then they brought me to some countryside, and I was there with very happy chasing butterflies. <laughs> that's a lovely story. I, li- I like that. Well, that's it for part one of our interview with Professor Sergei Khrushchev. Our second part will contain details on the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
the Berlin Wall and much more. So stay tuned for that second episode. I do recommend Professor Khrushchev's book, Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower, which gives much more detail beyond our podcast interview. The book is available from our show notes at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage. If you like what you are listening to, then do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Lastly, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.